Hi, and welcome to the Active Travel Podcast, a podcast dedicated to research and discussion in and around walking, cycling, and micromobility. You're listening to the second of our PhD pod, which focuses in on some of the most exciting PhD research in this area. My colleague, Dr. Rachel Aldred, who is leading on the Active Travel Podcast PhD pod, started it to get more of the fascinating and important work that goes into doctorate study to you, wherever you are. In this episode, Dr. Rachel Aldred talks to Dr. Rory Parsons, who's a geographer who completed his PhD in Cycling Cultures, Advocacy and Practice at Newcastle University in 2018. Rory's now a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Sheffield as part of the Plastics Redefining Single Use project. For this episode, he talks about his work around cycling with a little bit of his current work thrown in for good measure. Over to Rory and Rachel. Brilliant. So um, this really exciting PhD research using a mix of qualitative methods, um, looking at cycling culture, cycling advocacy, cycling practice in Newcastle upon Tyne. So really pleased to have you with us today, Rory. We're going to just ask a few questions about your research um, and just a chance to chat about all the things that you did and the things that you discovered. So maybe just to start off, where did the PhD idea come from? Yeah, so um, originally, um, the, both the Masters and the PhD was part of um, the ESRC 1 plus 3 studentship. So um, I had the opportunity to do a Masters that enabled me in the dissertation itself to explore something of interest, whether that was a, a section of the PhD that I would look into or something similar. So with the Masters, I wanted to have a look at sort of historical evolution of, of cycling and that involved going to CTC or what's now Cycling UK's archives to explore how they envisaged cycling through a period of the 1950s, 60s and 70s which we we termed um, automobile modernism. So during a time when the car system was being built, the car was becoming king and cycling was being outmoded. So that enabled me to really explore during this time the CTC Cycling Tourist Club, their their uh, approach to um, campaigning at the time and how they attempted to sort of fight against the grain, against the sort of system of automobility. So that then gave you the idea that you wanted to go into uh, greater depth and put these various um, cycling advocacy, cycling cultures and so on. Yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah, it really, really got me thinking about understanding how current cycling culture is informed by the advocacy and the activism um, groups that are existing or historically existing. So, yeah, I, I wanted to understand how these groups structured, promoted and developed the cycling cu- uh, culture and going forward, how, how it sort of created a particular cycling practice. And that sort of then led on to, yeah, the, the case study of Newcastle. Mm. But within that, wanting to really explore different groups mm. and how they contribute in different ways. So it's not just understanding that cycling is one definitive way of cycling, but mm. there's lots of variations of cycling and how how these groups were all contributing in different ways to that sort of idea. Um, so, yeah, and then that's how I then started to come up with, through the ethnographic research, these, this idea of social sites, um, cycling social sites. So they're not necessarily tangible, as in, like, look, mum, no hands, as a cycle cafe, but 
cycling campaigns as well. Yes, and I suppose maybe more so at the moment as well, you might be thinking about virtual spaces, communities and so on. So you mentioned cycling as a practice. So you use an approach called practice theory in the thesis. Could you kind of explain what that means and what the implication of that is? Yeah, so with social practice theory, I wanted to sort of go beyond the individual. So rather than sort of understanding cycling as an individualistic practice and their behaviours and their attitudes talk towards it, I wanted to understand um, cycling that is is done in society and um, practice theory really as a framework enables that because it understands that everything we do in life is a practice, whether that be shopping, washing up, cycling, um, everything is a practice and it's informed by various elements. And um, I sort of popularised Elizabeth Shove's approach to practice there in which you need materials, meanings and competences in order to perform a practice. So materials might be um, cycling infrastructure. It might also be the bicycle, the helmet or particular clothing. Competences, again, the knowledge of cycling, whether that be on the road or in separated infrastructure. And then meanings. So a lot of the time we we focus on meanings of health. Um, cycling, when it's promoted, is promoted as fun. Mm. But then there's also other meanings of safety, issues of safety and stigma. Mm. So all of these start to really interact with one another. And what it does is it decenters the individual and it sort of puts the practice at the center of, of the investigation. Um, and that really helps in focusing on what these social sites, these cycling social sites, um, were trying to create a, a particular practice or a particular performance of cycling. Because, yes, and I, I, I imagine practices, you know, they're, they're contested and they differ in different places. So you mentioned, for instance, um, helmets. So say in London, a helmet might be seen by many people as um, something that is needed for the practice of cycling. But in Amsterdam, it might not be. Yes, definitely. And and you sort of start to then understand um, within the practice of cycling itself. So you could consider the high level idea of cycling as entity. So Mm -hmm. if you're stood out on the road and you see someone cycling, you recognize that as cycling. But then there's the understanding that there's lots of performances. So Mm -hmm. it might be that someone is cycling for leisure. So they might be cycling on, say, the National Cycle Network. Um, There might be people who you understand to be sort of roadies, you know, uh, cycling in Lycra, a particular bike. And then, yeah, you might look towards um, Holland and there will be a different performance there with the bike that they use. Um, Possibly the lack of the separated infrastructure means that then there's um, more reliance on the infrastructure rather than people's competences so you start you start to understand particular performances but then that also is really interesting to see how people might go from one performance of cycling say for leisure to cycling as utility and how do they take certain elements across from one performance to another but then do they have to add in new elements of, of cycling um, say if you're used to cycling for leisure, you might be off off road a lot. Um, and then when coming to cycling for utility, you might then have to learn new ways of cycling. Um, mm. Say in the vehicular cyclist, you know, um, negotiating traffic, so you can start to see how practices can transition from one performance to another. 
and the, the social sites that that you mentioned that they, they were kind of interested in transferring that and in trying to get people potentially from leisure cycling to transport cycling so you you studied that yeah yeah so with the social sites um part of my sort of ethnographic journey um was exploring various cycling social sites and really identifying two or three key social sites that i felt had different understandings of cycling and their contribution to Newcastle cycling culture and the cycle hub for instance they you know they're they're a bit like look on their hands they have a cycle cafe they have a cycle shop they do a number of the british cycle rides from the cafe itself and they really wanted to engage with new cycle users they wanted people who hadn't cycled before and get them into cycling and they did that through um leisure based performances mm. But then they also emphasise the transition to the cycling for utility mm. in the aim that hopefully people will go from a weekend ride or an afternoon ride into thinking, oh, I can cycle to work now. And you did. And the, the part of your um, thesis involved, as you mentioned, the sort of going along the ethnographic work, um, spending time with them and going along on rides with them. And that, I found this one of the um, really exciting bits of the thesis to read the descriptions and what you learned from that. So I wondered if you could say something about that. Yes. Yeah, so with, with the Cycle Hub, yeah, I went on a number of the British cycle rides that they sort of facilitated. I engaged with these ride alongs, which I didn't necessarily do with the other two social sites. And that was because they had these um, rides um, in which they they provided bicycles, helmets, and they sort of promoted. And it was really interesting to see how cycling was promoted to sort of early adopters um, and the sort of different meanings, materials and competences that were, were sort of circulated in those rides. So from the ethnography, um, I was able to sort of join the rides and sort of notice what's going on. And there was this real, um, real focus on using the National Cycle Network because that enabled sort of wide traffic free routes in which people could, um, what I sort of term that I use was sort of social bunching. They could ride side by side. They could talk to one another. They could relax, enjoy themselves. Um, and through the rides you had these pinch points where you started to sort of cross the road network or you needed to use the road network in order to access um, another sort of part of the national cycle network and at these points the rhythm of cycling and the experience became a lot more sort of staccato and stopping and starting and single file riding people were not talking as much and um, I'd been on a number of rides and there was one particular ride that involved instead of going east to west along Newcastle using the National Cycle Network, they tried to link all the various parks up in Newcastle. Mm. So it was like a north to south route and it didn't focus on using the National Cycle Network much. And in this experience, there was a lot of stopping and starting and the ride leaders telling you what to do at the traffic light. So before before riding on the road environment, you were we were all sort of in an alleyway and they were sort of instructing you, right, when you get on the road, go through the traffic lights, put your arm out to the right, turn right, and we'll meet, we'll convene somewhere else. And that was really interesting that, you you know, there was these two landscapes in which people were experiencing cycling. One was a very social atmosphere and one was a very restricted car-dominated atmosphere. Mm. And the people 
cycling with me were predominantly retirement age, doing it for health purposes from their doctors or their family encouraging them to do it. And they really sort of picked up on this. And in discussing that with them, they would only cycle for leisure. They saw no value in cycling for utility because Mm. it was using these sort of road environments where they felt very unsafe. And that was really interesting that the sort of the ethnographic observations allowed and sort of to talk with them as you were cycling. And also in the road environment, stopping and starting took a lot of energy for some riders. And whereas if, if you're on these sort of smooth routes, it was quite continuous and quite free flowing and you didn't have to put as much energy into into cycling so it's really interesting yes and that actually that really um reminds me of the what the podcast interview i recorded with emma barbazzi when she was talking about how transport is often about avoiding hassle rather than optimizing it's trying to find a hassle-free experience in a whole range of ways and that what you just described is about safety or feeling of unsafety or whatever but it's also about hassle isn't it that constant um checking yourself stopping starting and so on it's an uncomfortable and hassly experience yeah and that sort of comes back into into what i could explore by using the social practice theory framework that mm. i was starting to understand that the materials the infrastructure enabled certain performances mm. the, the, the national cycle network enabled that sort of free-flowing and not to be hassled um whereas the the car network you had to have a lot of competence to cycle you had to have a lot of prior knowledge mm. I came back to that vehicular cycling so um, they did provide their sort of cycle lessons that would help you with those rides but some of the people who were on those rides had no prior knowledge to cycling in traffic mm-hmm. and so yeah it became very the enjoyment wasn't there for them as opposed to being on the, the traffic free environments and and when you talk about the vehicular cycling as well i wonder if it's if it's worth just sort of explaining a bit more for people who might be listening to what vehicular cycling is and what sort of role it plays in the thesis yeah so this was something that really sort of came through when comparing the sort of historical cycle campaign work and the sort of contemporary cycle campaign work in my research but also sort of through the literature um and it's sort of the vehicular cyclist is sort of the integrationist approach in that you you are the cyclist or the person cycling is a vehicle mm. as as a car is um, and you mix on the road with traffic and you become a vehicle in itself and for that to happen you need to sort of have a level of cycle cycling proficiency and mm. you know you think about coming up to a roundabout and signaling and taking the center late uh, center line and really putting your body up against certain other vehicles that are so much heavier than you whereas the the separationist approach is sort of that separated cycle infrastructure in that you know cycling has its own space such as like the pavement is for walking separated cycle infrastructure for cycling and the road and that sort of really came through in that time bikes the historical campaign that i focused on between 1982 and the early 2000s advocated for vehicular cyclist approach minor changes to the road environment would enable a cycling growth in the city. Mm. Whereas what was really interesting with um, Newcastle Cycling Campaign, which were established, I want to say 2010, might be one year out, I can't remember. But they, you know, they they started from the standpoint of infrastructure is key Mm. and we need separated cycling infrastructure. And again, that's coming back to this practice theory work of they were really 
putting the material element at the forefront of their campaigning, whereas Time Bikes was focusing on competences and knowledge. Mm-hmm. And you, you, when you were looking at these different campaign groups as well, you were for, for Time Bikes, the older campaign group, you were y- largely using documentary analysis? Yeah, yeah. So with the ethnographic approach, I, I, I came from, from studying a lot of, um, from going to a lot of the cycle stakeholder groups at the local council, looking through sort of the council documents of, of these sort of traffic group meetings. Um, this name of Time Bikes came up. Um, sort of in the late 2000s and I was able to trace back within the cycling community that there was this campaign and there was a number of key sort of stakeholders who were still involved in the cycling arena and I had a few interviews with them sort of semi-structured interviews and what came out from that method was they couldn't recall what went on 20, 30, 40 years ago but one of them said I've got a lot of documentation from over the years, you know, newsletters, minutes from the cycle group meetings, uh, pamphlets, all of this thing. And that really sort of became the archival aspect of that social site. And it allowed me sort of longitudinally to look at what they were campaigning for and the issues at the time. The archival uh, nature of of that uh, data method really sort of was able to paint me a picture of the time of, of the issues and struggles and what they were trying to do with cycling at that time. Yes, and it kind of reflects what I think is often some of the most exciting aspects of a qualitative research project like this, that one um, path sort of maybe leads a little bit down a dead end, but then another one opens up and it's kind of a bit like being a detective digging up some of this archive stuff, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely something that I've turned my hand to and I really sort of like the archival element. There was moments where I thought I discovered other historical social sites that I wanted to look into. But unfortunately, the material wasn't there and people's knowledge wasn't there or people had moved. And so it really, the sort of the ethnographic approach enabled me to react to those chances. You know, if if I hadn't have developed that methodology, the social site of Time Bikes wouldn't have been possible. Mm. But sort of the approach enabled me to, to react on these opportunities and sort of the chance discussions that revealed sort of a wealth of material that sheds light on point in time that there isn't a lot of sort of cycling advocacy knowledge. Yeah and I I think one of the there's a quote somewhere in the thesis about how people were just sort of trying to keep cycling alive in a sense which is kind of sad but also admirable. Yeah yeah so that was trying to understand with time bikes whether they were trying to promote a certain way of cycling but whilst I tried to argue that they did support a vehicular cycling standpoint there was also this acknowledgement of the policy at the time and I was able to unearth historical cycling documents within sort of the city council and from that time it was this tolerate but don't encourage standpoint Mm -hmm. so you had to step back and whilst we're in a period now where ecologically and health crisis that cycling is paramount going forward in this time the car system was still developing was still strong and Mm -hmm the the campaign to a certain extent were were looking 10 15 years ahead and saying well if we can support those who currently cycle and keep those performances alive hopefully in 10 to 15 years the situation would have changed in that we can be more progressive and and you could argue with Newcastle cycling campaign that does come to fruition there is 2010 onwards there was this real 
push in which they've gained so much traction and so many people involved in achieving things that maybe Time Bikes could have historically kept alive just. No, it's a really, uh, really interesting perspective on it. And you really kind of got to immerse yourself in all this stuff. I wanted to ask also with the ethnographic approach and you're kind of, you are getting really into what's happening, going along, being there at meetings and so on. And particularly with something that people are passionate about, that people argue about, like cycling, how do you sort of balance that with the way that people see you and the way that people want to know where you stand? Yeah, I had to be really aware of my surroundings prior to my master's you know, I, I'd cycled all through my life, but it was just a way to get to my part-time work or get to school. Um, it was, you know, really important to be reflective of me and the practice of cycling and the influence it has on me and also going into those environments. So, yeah, when, when going in, I was I was very wary. And the process was between 2014 and 2017. So I had a three years of being in that cycling arena, as it were. I sort of had a section in my thesis where I tried to reflect on where I opened doors by talking to people and gained access to certain social sites, but how that might have been interpreted by other people in other groups or other views and whether that closed doors. And so I had to be very aware of of that. And I was very honest with people. I tried to sort of maintain a, a level that I wasn't biased. And, and it was also being aware of when talking to uh, council members because I'm going to these cycle meetings and in these cycle meetings I'm not talking a lot I'm sort of observing I'm frantically writing things down but I never speak so it wasn't just within the cycling community it was also the council if I wanted to talk to them how would they perceive me you know would they would they have seen me in a different way and I had moments when I lost sort of track and I became too involved mm-hmm. so rather than observing what was going on and trying to understand it I did get very involved and coming out a day later, starting to try and analyse it, I realised I couldn't analyse it because I was so invested in it. And being invested in it, I'd lost lost the research at that point. So they were sort of really important bits to sort of draw you back and think, okay, you know, trying to, to keep a handle on everything. Yeah, it's why it's why ethnography is so great and so interesting, but also so difficult to sort of maintain, constantly keep maintaining that distance, I guess. Yeah, and, and with the with the cycle hub stuff, there was this, I suppose, privileged position in that I was going to some cycle rides, like the beginner rides, and I had so much cycling knowledge of how to do things that people were looking at me and thinking, why are you here? And sort of having to be honest with them and being aware that, yeah, in, in these environments, the, the practice of cycling for me, of I tried to engage in certain ways of cycling and certain practices and... I bought Lycra shorts and a Lycra top and I went out on these rides and I was sort of trying to be reflective reflective of, you know, what type of performances was, was I engaging with. And so when I turn up to the cycle rides at the cycle hub, how am I presenting myself? Mm-hmm. How do they see me? So um, to begin with, I used the townie bike, which is sort of um, sort of the handlebars come round, lower gears, comfy seating, it's hub gearing. I sort of, had a few sessions using the townie bike mm. to, to understand the experience of the, the provision of the cycling that they provided at the hub. And then going forward, I realized if I then turned up with a road bike that had dropped handlebars and cleats and all of this, how would that, how would that be viewed? So I, I took the decision, actually, you know, 80% 
roughly generally used a townie bike, mm-hmm. I would I would continue to use that because that actually gave me a more textual understanding of the performances that were going on in those rides. Yes, I guess both in terms of how people react to you, but also your own experience of that that ride. So yeah, so with with the road bike, if I tried to use that on the National Cycle Network gravel track, I used it once or twice and I got a puncture. And so then, you know, it was one of those things where it just didn't it didn't work or it was bumpy. And and that sort of then highlighted other things such as I didn't know how to repair a bicycle. Um I've never had that knowledge mm-hmm. of sort of that understanding or competence of repairing a bike i would take it to a bike shop quite frankly um but it was quite interesting because some people would look at me and think well you must you know you must know how to repair a bike um you know you're invested in cycling in that way and that was the thing that the tiny bike enabled it had sort of tires that could plug the puncture Mm. but also if you cycled with a tiny bike on those rides the ride leaders would repair your bike if there was any issues if you brought your own bike, they wouldn't uh, attend to your bike in any way. Oh. So it was really interesting that I sort of looked back and reflected on that and thought, well, I don't know, I don't have this knowledge. And what happens if I get left behind and they assume that I can mend my bicycle when I can't? So actually, it's a lot safer to use their towny bicycle because I had the mechanic element there that they could help me with oh no that's so interesting that's yeah all about where the competences are located which people in the infrastructure and so on yes um yeah just kind of a more general question when i mean there's so much um in the thesis and so much exciting research what if if you could pull out something as being particularly exciting or surprising or what would it be i think one of the outputs that i had or one of the research questions i had was to understand the contributions of these social sites mm. to to cycling and the the comparison between time bikes and new cycling campaign was uh, newcastle cycling campaign was really interesting that you assume that uh, a cycling campaign would have very similar motivations mm. but that that distinction between what one campaign thought was safe cycling and what another thought was safe cycling was was really interesting in that mm. you know safety was for time bikes within the knowledge and competence and understanding of how to use the road environment and uh you know 30 years on mm. uh, safe cycling has sort of transformed into much more of a focus on the material infrastructure and understanding that competence and knowledge will only get you so far or it might get a certain population of people so far in that they could ride but for others um, it, you know, the, the materiality of, 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 of cycling was, was critical. Um, and for New Cycling Campaign, that came through their, their focus on a lot of the stakeholders I interviewed were women. And um, a lot of the online material referenced children mm-hmm. and, and their children. And so you could see them starting to talk about, rather than the cyclist, the individual they started to talk about this sort of holistic idea of cycling and where it, where they want to go and and how how cycling will look in the future in relation to sort of separated cycling infrastructure and that sort of call it it connected quite nicely to the cycle hub work with the national cycle network in the social bunching mm. 
because Newcastle were going through a period of their Cycle City Ambition Fund where you had sections of, of dedicated cycle infrastructure where you were observing parent and child cycling side by side. Mm. But then sections before that were on the road. And, you know, the it was really interesting because the parent was becoming the infrastructure in that they were positioning their body against the cars and so and protecting their children. And it was this sort of real interesting connection in that the cycle hub focused on the national cycle network and, and the social bunching and the campaign were sort of um, prioritizing this idea of social bunching. Um, and in order to have that sort of, uh, transition from cycling as leisure to cycling for utility there is that um similarity of of separated cycle infrastructure to enable social bunching to enable a mm. uh, calmer smoother rhythm that people can experience and and less hassle um because the infrastructure is taking that responsibility and it's sort of lowering the competences necessary and then that starts to look at including children and also sort of the elderly population because they're they're not you know having to ride maybe one-handed because they have to signal they can always have two hands on the bike they're not having to look behind them constantly for the fear of a car sort of having a close close uh, near miss so that was sort of a really sort of interesting aspect to it that drew all on all three social sites and different understandings of practice of, of cycling practice Yes, and you can kind of see how the infrastructure and the competences, how that potentially links into the meaning and is a cyclist seen as somebody who's zooming along on its own in Lycra or is it a group of school children? Yeah, yeah, and, and meaning, yes, I suppose it does sometimes, I sort of might have left it behind there, but the meaning, yeah, with, with the with the cycle hub, the meaning was for like leisure and health and that was really important. But if you create those spaces for utility it becomes it will probably have those those meanings within it but you then start to understand cycling to be more normalized because you're creating a more um like a similar practice you know you're you're involving elements the consistency of elements so then you could start to ask does yeah do do the performances of cycling reduce because you're sort of getting a consistency of of cycling elements and then does that sort of create opportunities of people who want cycled for leisure to cycle for utility? So a lot of focus is on maybe on training people to cycle, mm. but maybe there's other elements that need to happen first, improvements in certain elements that have to happen first mm. for then sort of cycling proficiency to, to take hold and propel sort of cycle usage to a higher sort of population. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really interesting um, questions. And are you personally sort of optimistic for cycling in Newcastle and elsewhere at the moment? So, unfortunately, I haven't I haven't been back to Newcastle since sort of finishing. So um, I haven't I haven't seen that. But from from especially with London, what you see with the network being developed and the idea that with Newcastle, historically they had what was quite interesting from the 80s onwards they had this cycle network and all throughout the 80s 90s way you know throughout these different campaigns that network was quite similar they've started to sort of build that infrastructure 
Um, and, you know, the campaign are, are doing everything they can to sort of keep the pressure on developing it because you need a network. That That's something that shows from the research is that um, if they can develop a continuous sort of similar network, then, yes, I would be very optimistic. Um, but if not, you're going to have those moments where people have to cycle on the road so that comes back to having to negotiate car traffic mm-hmm. and having to have those competences of vehicular cycling possibly mm-hmm. and so that will put those people off but if you have a consistent network that maybe doesn't engage with traffic as much then that 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 gives a sort of a certainty that people can negotiate to get from a to b as it were um so yeah, I, I want to be. I want to be very optimistic. I just, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, was there was there anything um, else that you wanted to add that we haven't talked about that I haven't asked about the the PhD research? Um, not necessarily PhD. I think I suppose what is interesting for me is since then I've gone into a uh, a position where. I sort of used the social practice theory in my other work, but it's looking at plastics. And this is something that's just off my head, but it's really interesting in how there's these sort of, you know, the climate crisis and ecological crisis, health crisis. And in certain ways with plastic, people feel empowered and able to do something about it Mm. with um, with the transport situation, it's been quite consistent. I know Carlton Reed's done a lot of work where he talks about um, sort of cycling booms, but actually it's, it's remained quite consistent through time. It's quite interesting to, to think about how certain, certain issues are more readily possible when others aren't. Um, and it sort of, sort of links into with what's happened with COVID that, I've observed um, in my area that a lot of people are cycling because of the the relationship between the car and the bike and less sort of need to travel by car. Mm. So the road environment changes. It becomes safer because there's less traffic and people are cycling more. Um, whereas with plastic, we've, we've become so reliant on it and, and it's, and it's use. Um, so yeah, that that's something that's sort of sitting there with me at the moment. I'm trying to work out how these different issues, how how they how they've gained traction in one area, but with cycling, we're still sort of grappling with trying to to mainstream it, as it were. Yeah, so there might be learnings from other areas like um, plastics reduction in terms of what we can do around cycling. Yeah, yeah, yeah and the practice, you know, the people's practices and and our use. Um, and hopefully we can and sort of map it on that. And I suppose, yeah, I suppose another another more broader point to bring is that the, the social practice theory enabled this opportunity to observe the car versus bike. So cycling to work is a practice, leisure cycling is a practice, but practices are performed in a number of ways. You know, you can walk to work, you can cycle to work, you can drive to work. And so it wasn't what came out from the uh, 
the research was it's not just about trying to grow cycling through enabling cycling by um, cycle proficiency, promoting cycling benefits, building infrastructure. It's also acknowledging that there's competing practices or modalities of, of the car. And, and what does that mean for the bike? And the theory really helps you to understand in order to have a transition, you've got to sort of build up one practice but start to deconstruct another, whether that's sort of, um, you know, higher costs for, for parking. So in Newcastle, they have a thing called Alive After Five, where after five is free to park. So that's really sort of inducing car demand into the city. So, you know, that's really helping car practice. That's helping people into the car when actually you should be, on the same hand, they're trying to promote cycling through the cycleways. But you can start to see how by taking that away and making it more difficult to drive but also enabling other practices, you can get that transition. So it's not just about building cycling and hoping people will change. You've got to start to start to pick at the different bits. So yeah, do you remove the infrastructure of the car? You know, they can't go down certain roads. It's quiet neighborhoods. So people can't physically gain access, whereas bikes and walking, you can. Um, that's sort of really interesting. Yes. And in some regards, the car and the bike, you can they, they have similarities that say the car and public transport or the bike and public transport don't in a sense as well. So you can sort of potentially see that transferring over that you do have the door to door access, you do have the timetabling flexibility and so on. Yeah. Definitely. Mm. Oh, alive after five, though, the implication that you need cars to be alive is. Yeah. Well, that's it. That, that was a, it's a it's a long running um sort of issue with with the campaign that they sort of mentioned the years and years of you know whilst they were doing great things for cycling the john dobson sort of street um cycle infrastructure and the cycle highways there were little things like that that just it steps it sets you back a little um and yeah they, they've got an amazing metro system mm-hmm. outside of london you know their metro system unparalleled it's getting a new fleet so it'll be more reliable so then yeah there's opportunities for that to transition but again you're not allowed bikes on the metro so how do those modes interact with one another yes wow that's all been really great and thank you very much for spending the time to talk to us about your research yes thank you for having me thanks very much Shori. thank you for listening to the active travel podcast second ever phd pod you can find us on twitter and instagram at active underscore ata or online at blog.westminster.ac.uk forward slash ata forward slash podcast or you can email us at active travel academy at westminster.ac.uk let us know what you think share it with your friends and colleagues like us and subscribe thank you for listening and thanks again to our guest rory parsons and your host dr rachel aldred until next time